everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have the inspiring story of Silverio Straw. I got a pleasure this past weekend of meeting Silverio at an event that honored the work of so many who are formerly incarcerated and not only turning their own lives around, but have helped others to do the same. Welcome to the show, Silverio. Thank you for having me. So um, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, it's uh, interesting. Uh, I learned a little bit of, about it last weekend, but uh, can you kind of share a little bit about it? Um, I found myself given my personal power to those in the community who influenced me, influenced my early choices in life. And as a result, I lived a roller coaster ride of just making one poor choice after another. And through my early adolescence, um, young, teen, uh, young teen years and early adulthood on into my mature adulthood, I spent my life in and out of institutions, correctional institutions. I spent a, um, a total of 32 years incarcerated. And on the last term uh, was 20 years. It was 20 years. And um, I was released in 2018. Um, I served two years on parole and received an early kick on parole because of good behavior. And um, so far, I've been out of prison for three years. Um, I now own my own company, I own power washing business. Um, I'm also an advocate in the community. I am also a member on the board of the uh, Hustle 2.0 um, program. You, you know, it's a nonprofit, but the work that these men and women are doing is incredible. It's it's like, you know, where have you been all my life? You know, that type of thing. And, you know, these women and men of these, these programs, they, they seen me with value and that was something different for me because for a long time, you know, throughout my life, especially in my early childhood and teen years, I didn't see my value. I didn't know my value. I didn't know my place. So being connected with the people that I have found through Defy Ventures and Hustle 2.0, um, these people are, you know, their value is insurmountable. It is. They're genuine people who really do the work. So how is it that you ended up uh in the place that you did, um, you know, in terms of starting to get in trouble. I mean, what, what really started it for you uh, down that path? For me, there was a multi-layered um, one. We were, 
we, we didn't have a lot of money. So um, we struggled and it inspired early entrepreneurship in me to where I started a landscaping business when I was uh, 12 years old. Well, actually about 11, you know, but it, I, I kind of groomed and conditioned myself to about 12 to where I was efficient enough, you know, to make a substantial amount of money when I was young. Um, I, at nine or 10 years old, I asked my oldest sister who was of age and um, if she could get a paper route and I would go out and I would do the route every morning before I went to school, just give me a portion of her paycheck. So, you know, it was just things like this that I did. You know, I would go to the community laundromat and sweep the floors and clean out the vent traps and everything. So it, it opened my eyes to entrepreneurship, but the money was not consistent. And I really wanted to help out my family because we were struggling. There was some, sometimes we didn't have meals. Um, I have, by the way, I have nine brothers and sisters. I'm the 10th. I'm the third of the 10. And, you know, it was hard on us. It, it was really hard on us. My mother was clinically depressed. My father was abusive, uh, addict, and he was in and out the door all the time. You know, my father would leave and go out of town for two or three days and we wouldn't see him. So it was just my mother, my grandmother, and my siblings. And we struggled. We struggled a lot. So financial hardships was one of the reasons that the lifestyle, the street lifestyle became so appealing to me. But then there were other things that I wanted. I wanted to come into my own manhood. You know, I was young, but I was a young man child. I was smart. And I wanted to come into my own manhood. I wanted to be able to buy my own clothes and, you know, provide for my brothers and sisters. So, you know, it was something that it, it was definitely a, a heavy weight that I carried on my shoulders. So it was easy to be influenced by the instant gratification of what I seen around me, because that's what it was. It was instant gratification. Everybody I seen around me was having and they was having it fast, but it was the greatest risk. They were taking the greatest risk. And they didn't care about the consequences. And I didn't want to care either because I was so broken on the inside and not understanding why I was hurting, why I was such an emotional child, you know, such distant. You know, I had friends, but I didn't have a lot of friends. So how old were you when you first started getting in trouble? I was 12 years old when I shot someone for the first time. It was um, for me, it was an act of self-defense but it became more. It became more because when the incident occurred and this individual struck me, I feared for my life because he, he hurt me physically. I mean, bad. And I feared for my life. So I was with accompanied by my little brother. And when I was attacked and knocked to the ground, my brother got on his bicycle and rode back home, which was maybe four blocks away. And he retrieved my father's gun. My father and my mother had a gun. They kept, kept away, but all the kids knew where it was. My brother retrieved the gun and came back. And when he retrieved the gun and came back and I seen him with the gun, I felt empowered. So when I took the gun from him, I immediately shot the guy. And I just felt overwhelmed with this, this sense of power that, now I control this situation. And that would eventually become the expression of my life. That if you know you do something to me or you cross me in a certain way, this is how I'm gonna to respond to make you respect me. And so what did that lead to? It led to 
a life of crime, uh, uh, a life of crime. I became uh, a drug dealer. I became a thief. Um, and I became uh, uh, a very violent individual towards, towards people I felt hurt or wronged me in some type of way. And I would be very extremely aggressive with them. And it just, it, it got out of control because what I found later in life is that the more I did it, the more disconnected I became with my humanity. I didn't care about the value of life. I didn't care about the value of friendships or love. Those things did not interest me anymore. It became the influential, uh, uh, the circumstances came influential by the potential of having power, some form of power, which it wasn't power, but I realize that now, but in, in my early adolescent mind, it was power. It was power when people feared you and respect you, when people knew not to cross you in a certain way. And I felt that that negative power made me someone to be appreciated, someone to be admired and respected. So that incident that happened when you were 12, did you end up uh, going uh, doing time for that? No, I... Um, Shortly after the incident happened, maybe four or five months down the line, I ended up uh, committing a crime and went to uh, juvenile hall for the first time. And, you know, I seen the system early on. I seen the system as a joke. And it was because the way the system the system was designed from the time of entry into the system, there was no tools or resources there available to me to help me make better choices or recognize the wrong in my choice. The only way that I was able to, um, I would say the only way that I was able to connect to the wrongs and the right was to create for myself a system, which it was a broken system, but a system to where I feel that every choice that I made was justified by my actions. Now, a lot of people will say that, uh, you know, the juvenile system uh, doesn't help anyone. They just help them become better criminals because they're basically hanging around with other people. They're getting victimized uh, if they're on the young side. And so they come out of there uh, hardened criminals, whereas they might come in uh, as somebody doing maybe something relatively petty. Was that kind of your experience? That was my experience throughout the entire system. And that was until I, I became proactive about my wanting to change, my desire to change. The, when, when you walk into the system early on and you have a set of broken principles in your heart and in your mind, and this is what you live by, these philosophies, these ideas is what you live by. And there is no external forces to teach you new tools or to show you how to use these new tools, then you find yourself in, in the company with those who are like-minded, like you. So you find out how to become a better thief, a better drug dealer, a better abuser. You, know, you find out how to be these things because you're learning from these other guys who are doing something the same or similar. Um, and so, you know, 
when you ultimately went down for 20 years, um, you know, what was it that led to that conviction? Um, attempted murder robbery. It was a, a attempted murder robbery that led to that conviction. Previously, before that conviction, I served seven years in prison. Uh, I was supposed to serve 10 years with halftime for uh, a drug trafficking conviction. And I ended up serving seven years because I was misbehaving while I was in prison. So I didn't get the good time that I was eligible for. And while while I served the seven years, the entire time that I'm serving the seven years, David, I am feeling that I am old. I felt people owed me something. So the entire time that I'm serving this time, I'm waiting to get back into society so I can claim what is mine or take what is mine. And as a result of serving, as a result of serving that first seven years, I was released 52 days and I found myself arrested again and facing 20 years, which I eventually did 20 years, but I was only out of prison 52 days after serving the seven years and I was back in prison for 20 years. When you're doing that, are you thinking that you're going to end up going back to prison or you're thinking that you're smart enough now to get away with it? I, both. I thought I was smart enough to outsmart the system, to do what I intended to do, get away with it and remain in society. But consequently, it didn't work like that. I did the crime. I was caught. I was guilty and I was sentenced to the time. And I made my peace with my choice. I made my peace with my choice, but I carried long lasting grief and remorse because those who I love the most in this world, I hurt the most in this world. Are you able to describe uh, what happened on, on that night? I was, the night started with, I was spending time with a niece and nephew, my eldest sister's children. And we're sitting there watching movies. You know, this is um, this is the first time in since seven years, because I was gone seven years, that we had the opportunity to bond and sit down and spend time together. So we were sitting down watching TV, watching movies on the TV, and a family member came over and asked me if I would go somewhere with him. And I told him I would. So I told my niece and nephew, I'll be back, lock up the house. And I left with him. Well, we took a detour. Instead of going to the destination we were supposed to be going to, we took a detour. What, the moment he took the detour, we got into a big fight. We got into a big argument because he was taking me into a crime-ridden neighborhood and I didn't want to be there. But he was there because he wanted to, you know, um, he wanted the activities that I, and I told him, I said, listen, you know, you got five minutes and I'm leaving. So in name that he walked off from me to do his extracurricular activity, I sat outside because I didn't want to go inside anybody's house. I sat outside waiting for him to come back outside. And the individual that I ended up shooting and robbing had crossed my path. 
So when he crossed my path, I was already in a distorted mindset. I was angry. I, I had venom inside me because I felt like I felt like I was being forced into making this choice to be in this location when I did not want to be in this location at this time. So when we came across each other's path, um, the individual didn't say or do much. You know, he looked at me, he made a comment, a small comment, you know, maybe two words, and I just attacked him. I just attacked him. I, you know, I had all the, um, the energy and hatred inside me to do what I did. And I did it because I could not restrain myself. I did not even attempt to. And how long after that were they able to catch you and arrest you? Um, within, I would say within five minutes, they, you know, the, uh, what I didn't know is that the victim at some point had called the police and they were already en route. Uh -huh. So while the crime was under commencement, the police were already en route. So by time I did, be, between the time that the crime happened, that I shot him and then took all his possessions from him, the police arrived within maybe a minute, two minutes. And it became a foot pursuit of a foot chase because I ran and they caught me. And this is about the year 2000 or? Yes. Yes. End of 1999, early 2000. And, and, and so you end up, uh, where, where'd you end up going um, for prison? Um, I cannot remember the starting place. I know the process goes county jail, uh, DVI Tracy, which is a reception center. And then they send you off to whatever institution that you're going to be intake at and start serving your time. Um, I just remember the county jail and, and, uh, intake at Tracy where I went from there. I cannot recall, but I can tell you that I've been from the top of California, Pelican Bay state prison, all the way down to the bottom to Sentinella, all level fours. All my time was spent on level fours. So I was in maximum security prisons from the top of California to the bottom. And there's a lot of maximum security prisons in between. So uh, were you at the shoe at Pelican Bay? No, I, well, I was uh, kicked out of the shoe in Tehachapi and I was transferred to Pelican Bay. So I wasn't in the shoe in Pelican Bay. I was in the shoe in Tehachapi. And when I was released from the shoe, they, um, there was no placement for me on their general population line. So they sent me to Pelican Bay State Prison. And so what was that like? The shoe is another world. I mean, it's like when you, when you come from society to jail, it's another world. But when you go into the shoe term, it, it is a whole nother reality. In most instances, you're in the shoe, you're by yourself. If you are, if you are eligible, meaning um, you don't have any rapes in your, uh, your central file, uh, you're not a pedophile, um, you don't have any uh, incidents of attacking your cellies in the middle of the night then you're, you're classified as eligible to be sailed up with another individual. But in most instances, they consider you dangerous and they put you in a cell by themselves. So when you're sitting in this small cell, the size of a bathroom, maybe a little smaller than a bathroom, you find that this is your reality. 
your meals are brought to your door, your mail is brought to your door, and every other day you are released into the rec yard to have some type of activities, basketball, soccer, but there's nobody to play with. Usually you're playing by yourself. But again, if you are eligible, then you are clear to the yard to play with other individuals who are also eligible. So, you know, there, there are, those are highlights that you look for while you in a shoe term because the shoe term is designed for solitude and separation. And you have a lot of solitude in there. You have a lot of thinking, uh, a lot of writing. If you have books, you have a lot of reading. Some institutions allow you to have appliances such as a television or a radio in the shoe. Others don't. So it depends on what institution you find yourself in and how you make use of the time that you have while you're in the shoe. And so you know, how do you make use? I read a lot. I, I read a lot. You know, I, I did that as well when I was on the main line. But I've always, I, I grew up in a household where there was more than 30 books available in the household. Um, the punishment was write book reports and read books. So, you know, uh, um, I was a word, um, I was a wordsmith. I like almanacs, uh, concordance. You know, I like using those types of tools. So when I, whatever book I had, if I had those other tools, I can make sense of whatever it was that I was reading. And so were you in there because of the crime you committed or because you were causing problems while you were in there? It was because I stabbed two inmates. Ah. Yes. I would say in the 20 years, my first seven or eight years that I was incarcerated, I was breaking the law while I was inside. I was still participating in gang activities, um, um, I had the title of a shot caller, so I was making calls. And if I felt someone uh, didn't carry out my orders the way that I wanted them to, then I would go back and clean the mess up. Sometimes I would lead. I would say, hey, you're going with me, and this is what we're going to do. And, and so at what point did you decide that this was enough, that this wasn't going to be your life anymore? Actually, when I was in boys camp, when I was 16 years old, I had decided then, but I was uncertain about the choices that I was making. I was still influenced. As the saying goes, I had one side on one side of the fence and one foot on the other side of the fence. So I, I was doing things to make me better, make me feel stronger, make my spirit, my heart, my mind stronger. But I was also doing activities that um, contributed to for the reasons that I was in prison. But at some point you go from the age of 16 to I'm guessing right around 50 or so um, and you make a change. Are you there? David, can you ask the question again, please? Yeah. I said, at some point, you went from the age of 16 to somewhere around 50, and somewhere in between, you, you made a clear change in your life. What triggered that? My children. It was my children. Um, being in prison, 
you find yourself, uh, the people you accompanied or spent time with in society, the relationships you were in, they dissolve after a while. You know, being in prison, it's, it's, it's very difficult on someone who is living in society, who hasn't made the choices or uh, hasn't made the choices or broken the law in the ways you have. And they have to be punished by 15 minute phone calls, uh, once a week visits for a certain amount of time, uh, you know, they, it, that can make someone break because it's a lot of pressure, especially when they're dealing with life. They have children at home. They have bills they have to worry about. You know, they have to uh, work schedule. They have to keep. It's very difficult for someone to maintain. And most of the time throughout my life that I've been incarcerated, I have been alone. So while I was in prison, the few times that I did to have uh, contact or conversation with my children, the things that I would hear them say to me, you know, such as, uh, if you was to come home from prison right now, dad, I would not come live with you because I need you to be a father to me. I don't need you to just give me money or buy me things from time to time. That's nice, but I need a father. And I didn't realize at the time that I didn't know how to be a father. I was nothing more than a sperm donor, but I was not living the title of father. So my children and the pain that I had inflicted upon them and the impression that they walked away from, I realized that that scar that is on the inside of them was created by me and it bothered me. So I wanted to fix it. And so how did you go about doing that? Well, the first thing that I did is I stepped away from the gang. That was the first decision that I made. The first decision was remove yourself from this negative. You have, I have always had issues with the lifestyle because there is no set rules. I can come in and I can make rules. You can come in. You can make rules. Um. So you were, um, you were describing kind of, you dropped out of uh, the gang. Uh, at, at what point was that? I mean, how long into your term uh, did you um, make this? About 11 years into my term. So 11, 11 years into my term, I decided that I was through. I told my cellmate, who was also a gang member, that I was moving out of the cell with him. Because if I'm gonna if I'm gonna tell these guys that I don't want to be a part of this gang life anymore, two things are gonna happen. One, I have to accept the consequences that come with it. Because, you know, the philosophy is blood in, blood out. You walked in, you can't walk out. So I had to deal with that. The second one was the association. I cannot have you in my company. I cannot learn from the way you communicate. I cannot learn from the way you think. If I want to better myself, I have to go outside of those influences. So I knew that being in a cell with an individual who was a gang member, that was gonna be a problem for me. It was gonna be a major hindrance for me trying to grow, for me trying to better myself. So did they put you in protective custody? No. 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 I, I went out to the yard and I addressed all the gang members and I was willing to accept whatever consequences that came with it. You know, and, I wasn't scared. I wasn't scared when I signed up. I wasn't scared when I left. And did they do anything or were they cool? No, no, they wasn't. 
there was no physical reaction to what I said to them, to me stepping away from the gang life. There was more, it was the non-physical, you know, the, the words and talking about you behind your back. But once I made my mind up, your words can't penetrate me unless I allow. If I allow your words to affect me, I have absorbed that poison that you just let out of your mouth. So because I was already in a place to where I felt strong spiritually, that didn't bother me that they was talking about me. I was only concerned with a physical threat or attack on my life, and that didn't happen. And, and then, so you drop out of the gang, and, and what other changes do you end up making? Um, I wanted formal education, so I went to college. I wanted to, to get some formal education as, um, about entrepreneurship, because it, again, you know, since childhood, the hustle, it has always influenced me or interests me. But now that I have this new perspective and this new value for people, for life, I want to see how I can use that with this, this new information that I learned in college. All right. Um, and so you, you got a degree. Did you Two. have a uh, high school diploma already at this point? No, I dropped out of school in the ninth grade. Um, I tried again around the uh, 11th grade. I tried to go back to continuation school, but I was too far into the streets by this time. I, I was sucked all the way in. And, you know, um, being responsible and handling, taking care of my schooling was a non-priority for me at that time. It be, the priority became run the gang run the drugs. That became the priorities. So I dismissed school all the way and I felt I didn't need it. But being in prison, there were so many young guys that were coming in and they was having pictures of proms and they would show their photo albums to me and show. And it, it just made me long for that experience. I was like, man, I screwed that up. I, I, I really could have had this experience. I could have did this. And I didn't have that experience and I just didn't know how it made them feel to have that experience versus not having that experience. I just I, I, I heard the reasoning in my head that this experience could have matured you in a certain way or help develop character for you. And, you know, because I I missed out on that opportunity, I said, you know what, go back to school and get your GED. So I went back to school, got my GED, graduated with a 3.9 and then went on to college. And, and so how did that experience affect you? The uh, graduating a GED? Uh, and, and going to college and getting a degree? Well, college was a positive and a negative. You know, for anybody who's been to college, all the reading you have to do, all the writing, the essays you have to do. I hated that. I hated it because I felt like I was forced to do it. I really didn't want to do it. So, you know, when I would see my papers graded or I would speak to my professor and I would get high reviews for something I did, you know, yeah, that felt good. But the tedious work that went involved in it, I complained about it the whole time. I did it, but I complained about it. So it was a positive and a negative. But I, what I learned from that is, is that pick a side. You know, either you want to do this 
and you want to reap the benefits of what you're doing this for, or you're going to be the one who complains about the process. Want to be the complainer of the process. I just wanted to say to myself, this is something I want. This is something I need for myself. This is something that can improve me in a certain way. So go apply yourself to it. Yes, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenged. It's going to be new. But if you're applying yourself to it, the more you do it, the easier to become. If you're complaining about it, you're going to resist. It's like waking up in the morning, getting ready for work. You because you need to get prepped. So, you know, it was the same thing. I just I complained, but I also enjoyed uh, the uh, the academic rewards, the achievements. And so how did you end up dealing with all the emotional baggage you had from growing up and everything that you went through in your life? <laughs> that, uh, that has been something that I have been, I would say from the age of 16, maybe 17, that was something that I was exploring from that age. But I lacked the tools. I lack the know-how of how to go inside and, you know, pull this stuff out so I can identify what it is and then sort through it, get rid of what's needed. I mean, what's not needed, keep what's needed. You know, um, a friend of mine, Dan Sullivan, he says that in order to discover your path from, from past to present, you have to go to your past and find out what was valuable about your past, pull that into your present, and then put it in a, put it in a plan, put it in a, a creative pot toward with your ideas about how you're moving forward and take it to your future. But when you're going to your past, you're going to find a lot of things about your past that are unneeded, unwanted. These are things that hinder you. These are things that hold you down. These are things that await your life. And I did not understand this, this tool or how to use it. But it was, it was later in life, maybe 20 years of disciplining myself in this area that I finally got the way to do it. While I was in prison, I went to, um, I went to every substance abuse, uh, anger management, parenting, uh, uh, criminal, uh, criminal minds. Um, I mean, criminal, uh, criminal, disrupting criminal mind behavior. Um, I went to so many classes and I got all these certificates to completion, but I felt like I still hadn't retained all the information because I still had these thoughts in my head. I still had these feelings in my heart. So I re-entered the class. So every time I would go to an institution, I would uh, contact a correctional counselor and ask them what programs they had available and then start signing up for the programs. And it got to the point where I was doing one or two programs a day to seven programs a day. And, and you know, what's that like? I mean, are you just dealing with emotional baggage all the time or is, is it almost... It was, that's, that's exactly... It was, it was the emotional baggage. And, and in order to deal with the emotional baggage, I had to understand why I had it in the first place. I'm like, you know, I mean, it's like you walk out the door for work, you have your work back on, you have your laptop on your other shoulder, and then you got this backpack on your back and you're saying, what is this backpack for? I got my work bag, I got a sandwich in there and some water. I got my laptop, this is all I need to go do what I need to do. 
why do I have this heavy backpack on? I had to realize why I had the backpack on and then find out what can I do to resolve whatever that was in that backpack. What I found out for me is that I go back to my childhood and I look at a child who felt unappreciated, ignored, undervalued. And I said, why did I feel this way? I feel this way because the way we grew up. Well, what I had to do is I had to identify, I had to be able to open my eyes with awareness and identify that my parents loved me. I wasn't in a trash can at, at birth. I wasn't sold off into prostitution. My parents, they, they fed me, they clothed me, they kept a roof over my head. We struggled having those things, but those things were provided for me. So I became to realize that, hey, my mother and father did the best they could with what they had. So that changed the tape that was playing in my head, that I didn't matter, that I was unimportant, that I wasn't loved. It changed that tape that's constantly playing in the back of my head, which is, which is validating what I'm feeling. So once I was able to identify that, I was able to resolve it. So I went through my life and it was a laundry list of things. I went through my life and I did everything, one thing at a time, just like that. And it took a while, but you know, I didn't have nothing but time. So it made sense to do it. Um, and, and talk about, you know, you, um, on Saturday, uh, you, you had uh, the audience go through the step to the line game. Uh, talk about how those mm -hmm. kinds of games kind of, helped you and, and what the role uh, those games kind of play? Even though I had did the work, when I first uh, encountered the five ventures, it was the end of 2017. No, it was the end of 2016, excuse me. Um, I had did a lot of work on myself. I had a lot of counseling, a lot of psychiatric help, uh, a lot of mental health help, uh, there was a lot of work that I did and I felt stronger. I spoke better. I communicated better to people. Um, I was able to apply myself better to the things that interest me or the things that I desired in life. But I still had a lot of, I still had a lot of emotional damage that was not completely resolved. And when I was introduced to uh, the five ventures and then hustle 2.0, they have these uh, soft core skills where they teach emotional intelligence. You know, you learn things like etiquette. I learned etiquette for the first time. I had never known about etiquette. I never known the placement of cups and the spoons and forks on the tray. I didn't know how to eat. I knew how to put food in my mouth, but I didn't know how to eat with etiquette. You know how to, you know, chew, chew, chew while you're speaking and then uh, drink, swallow and then speak while you're eating. Enjoy the meal and enjoy the conversation and company. I didn't know how to do this with etiquette. So learning these soft core skills, it was one of the hardest exercises for me in these programs, in Defy Ventures and Hustle 2.0, because when you do the step to the line exercise, when they do the exercise inside for the guys inside that's still in, in, incarcerated in, in correctional institutions. They go really deep. 
They go really deep and they have to go deep to peel back the layers. But they, before they introduce the step to the line exercise to you, they tell each individual, this is about you keeping it real with you. Because if you step to the line and the question is true for you, in that moment that you step to the line, you have to give some type of conscious attention to whatever that question was. And now you have to do an inventory and you say, is this something that's holding me back from growth and opportunity? Is this, is this where I can find my breakthrough at this step to the line exercise, answering this question, being real with myself and doing a complete inventory? Is this possible? And you know, cause the step to the line exercise is about your degree of being vulnerable and your degree of being honest with you. So if you are okay with vulnerability in the, in the, in a room full of strangers. In prison, it's different because it's about masculinity. It's about the alpha male. You have a bunch of alpha males in here and everybody is stepping to the line, but nobody really wants to step to the line. And then there's the peer pressure factor. If me and you are best friends and I step to the line and the question is true for you too, then you step to the line only because I did. But the inventory is about you, how deep you're willing to go for you within yourself. And when I did the step to the line exercise, I found that I still had a lot of attachments to a lot of pain. It was just, I ignored it. I tried to, you know, I tried to resolve it by taking it off the front parts of my mind and putting it in the back of my head and only thinking about it when the situation arose again. And I found that, that that's not good. If you haven't resolved uh, uh, an addiction, you don't want to go to an, a bar, be in a bar full of people, and you haven't really resolved your addiction, you just said to yourself, I'm going to stop drinking. You didn't go get any professional help. You used your own resolve, but then you put all the pain that was attached to the, to the drinking problem, you just put that to the back. You just put it on the back burner. And then you find yourself walking into a bar, and now all of a sudden, 100 triggers. So step to the line exercise allowed me to identify those things in my life that I had not yet resolved and give them the attention they needed to heal in those areas. Now you described kind of, you know, these big tough guys who would play this game and they'd, they'd like break down in the middle of the game. Yes, it. I think, and this is my opinion, um, I think that it has a lot to do with connectivity. You know, people have been disassociated with by society, by family and friends. And then they have somebody like me or you come in there and says, your life matters. But in order for that to be true for you, you have to believe it for yourself. I can believe it for you. David can believe it for you. But you have to believe that your life matters. And if your life matters, let's take positive actions towards showing that your life matters. So when these guys are in there and they connect with empathy, they connect with compassion, they've been disconnected. They lost their humanity a long time ago. They've been desensitized, desensitized by the crimes that they have repeated for over 10, 
20, 30 years. They think it's okay to take a needle and put it in their arm and get high in front of their children because their children are not using it. They're not looking at the adverse effect mentally that this is having on the child and what it's doing to them personally. So when you take inventory to, of it and you're at a step to the line exercise, that pain overwhelms you, you get brought to your knees. So you see these alpha males, they are human. They're not invincible. They're not monsters. They're human and they hurt. And this is the first time that someone has helped them in an exercise or a training course to identify that hurt and become strong. Don't become weak because of your hurt. Become strong. So does this help these people kind of figure out how to get back to a more normal place in their life? I, I mean, is this part of the healing process? Acknowledging that there's a problem? I would say, I would say this. The program is designed to have 100% effectiveness. The individuals are not 100% ready all the time. Sometimes they come to the step to the line exercise or they come to uh, the, uh, the hustle 2.0 curriculum or the defy curriculum. They come half hearted. So when you come half hearted and you're not ready to put forth the effort, it becomes the need and the want. Those who need, they're willing to do the work. They want you to show them, but they're willing to do the work. Those who want they're looking for you to show them, but you eventually do all the work for them. I have found when I, I, after I graduated from the program, I went on to peer facilitate three cohorts. So I helped a lot of guys graduate. And these guys wanted more for me than they was willing to do themselves. And I told them, I said, you guys want this call me or contact me when you need it because I don't think you feel like you need it yet. You're just doing this to get a certificate to put in your central file. Others are doing this to get a certificate to change their heart. So it depends. The, the, like I said, 100%, 100% turnout rate. If you come to the line with your 100%, whatever that is, my 100% was about 80%. But I brought my full 180% to the program. I graduated in the first cohort. I, uh, uh, when the, the program was first introduced to the prison at Pelican Bay State Prison, I graduated in the first cohort and I went on to peer facilitate three cohorts. That's because my 80 cent, I wanted my 80 cent to win. I wanted a return on my investment because I invested in me. There was others who invested in me, but I invested in me and I wanted my ROI. And there are some guys who they want to have it, but they don't want to do the work. Well, that's half-hearted. You're not bringing to the table what you need to do to excel. Now, most individuals, yes, yes, they are going all the way. Every guy in the, the first cohort with me that went on to peer facilitate, every last one of those guys are doing amazing things. And it was about 15 of us. Every last one of us. Out of the 15, I think it's six that have been released. 
and the other nine are still inside. Some had life sentences. Some uh, had overturned convictions. Some went to the uh, board of prison terms and was released. But they did the work. And all of them show, I'm in contact with all of these people. They all show that when you do the work, others will come stand beside you and make you strong. And that's what I love about the Defy and the Hustle 2.0 platform. They bring you together with people who are already doing the work in their individual lives and they're growing. They're becoming better people because of this program, because I've seen a lot of volunteers step to the line and break down. So they're doing the work, they're doing their inventory and they're coming out better on the other side. And then th these individuals, such as myself, we come out into society and now we have a network. So now we have the tools, the information, we have the training, and now we have a network of individuals who can show us how to move these pieces around. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So what did you tell the parole board in order to uh, get released? I didn't go to parole board. I served uh, all of my time. Oh, okay. I served all of my time. So you you, you had a determinate uh, sentence, not an indeterminate yes, one. Um, yes. Okay. So uh, since you've been released, um, you know, has it been a struggle or is it uh, been golden for you or both? No, it, it has been a struggle, but I look at my rotten peaches and I say, it's something I can do with them. You know, I, I have found, I, I learned from uh, Buddhist, Buddhist meditation and, and yoga practice that every seed comes with the equivalent, a positive equivalent. If you have a rotten piece of fruit, if you have a rotten tree, if you have a rotten heart, inside that, if you just peel back all the nasty inside that is a seed of equivalent benefit. But then you still required to do the work. You still required to take that seed, nurture it so it can grow up to be to produce whatever it is you're looking for. So, yes, I've struggled. I'm still struggling, but I make do, you know, when oh, Corona. Is... Say it again, please. Uh, what, what is the hardest thing for you? Maintaining steady workers, maintaining steady workers who are committed, focused. They want to they want to do more than just earn a paycheck. You know, and because I tell all my workers, I don't I, I'm not looking for you to work for me for the next 30 years. What I want you to do is I want you to come. I want you to uh, uh, be responsible and accountable for yourself and your family. Because some somebody, some of my employees, they have wife and kids at home. I want you to be responsible and accountable for that. But I also want you to learn enough to know how to apply this for yourself. Because I teach my, my employees how to be their own entrepreneurs, how to be the own make the, the uh, creators of their destiny. And you know, some of them are able to retain it and some are not. But what I have found is, is that um, you have a lot of people, they'll show up for a week or two, and then all of a sudden they'll start falling off and they're coming up with excuses and they're not reliable and dependable. And trying to run a business, you need somebody who is dependable. 
And, you know, big companies are having when I used to go down to Silicon Valley to LinkedIn or, or uh, Google and I would talk to the, the big CEOs down there, they would tell me, hey, we're having the same problem. We're having the same problems. It's, 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 if you find a solution, please share it with us because, you know, we, all, all we can do is just add some type of incentive to the program and bring the guys in and try to, you know, uh, uh, encourage our workers every day. But, you know, it's on the individual. But we find that that's what life is about. It's on the individual. If you're going to be a parent, step up. It's on the individual. If you're going to be a husband, a wife, you step up. It's on you. So talk about Hustle 2.0. Hustle 2.0 is my cousin. That's my first cousin. <laughs> Hustle 2.0 is, um, I can say it's a life sin for me. It's, 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 it's heaven sent, you know, that program. I was, before I ever came to Hustle 2.0, um, I was praying one day in my cell, maybe a couple months before I had uh, ran across Hustle 2.0 or Defy Ventures. But um, I was praying in my cell. And at the beginning of the year in 2016, they came up to the prison. The program came up to the prison first time. They introduced themselves and, you know, they, they uh, 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 rolled out enrollment forms. So I enrolled right there because this was that was something that I felt that I needed. You know, I was doing all the research for the company that I would like to start, which is what I ended up doing when I came home from prison. Um, I had already had a business plan. Defy, I mean, uh, Hustle 2.0 helped me refine it. They helped, gave me some pointers and helped me refine it. They had uh, they gave us access to uh, uh, a lot of influential professors from uh, Waco University. You know, there was a lot of doctors. There was a lot of people who volunteered their time and experience to teach us what they taught us. And they connected for me, they connected a lot of dots. So I didn't have so many gaps in the plans and ideas that I had for myself. So that, that program was something that I was praying for. It was something that I really desired in my life because I didn't have a network. All I knew was the old life and the old people. And none of them were doing anything constructive or positive enough for me to want to enter society and reconnect. So having these, these people to, to connect with, I have right now over 60 uh, volunteers that I met in that program. And we have been good friends for three years now. They have helped me with business. They have, uh, they have spent time with me, my family, you know, they, they have become a part of my family. They are people who I care about dearly. They are truly brothers and sisters to me and, and it will always be that way. So they were a lifeline to you, but, but you're now giving back. Um, so can you talk about yeah. how you've given back and helped people that were in your shoes? I realized the difference between ignorance and stupidity. And I tell people all the time, I am an individual who entertains ignorance because I understand what ignorance, ignorance is. You know, to summarize, ignorance is nothing more than a lack of understanding or an inability to make a connection. Sometimes people can't make the connection. So all I do is provide in, in, a, in a way that they can understand, I provide the connection. 
They do the work. Again, they do the work, but I provide the connection. And once you're able to, once you're able to connect the two points for them, then you sit back in silent mentorship and watch them. Watch them as they apply. Watch them as they grow. Watch them as they learn from what the two points that they just connected. And it, it, it is insurmountable, you know, the, the way it makes me feel. Because for me, it's a recharge. Because I find myself depleted every day, dealing with family problems, dealing with work problems, dealing with personal problems. And then I, I get this from an individual who I helped... Um, who I helped start a course that ended up in a certification and landed him a job at $28 an hour. And I watched him through this process. For me, that recharge is, is, is phenomenal. It's, it feels so good. It makes it worth keep doing it. You know, I, since I was first released from prison, I was released shortly before Thanksgiving. So I told myself, you know, I had a job by that time. I told myself that, um, I wanted to go feed the homeless. So I went out and fed the homeless. I enjoyed the interaction with the homeless um, at the time. So I went on to do it to Christmas, Christmas and New Year's. And since that time, I have done it Christmas, New Year's and Thanksgiving every year. And I've added to it. I would take old clothes out of my closet that are still good, that I have it. I would go to a dollar store, a bargain store, buy socks and underwears and stuff like that. And I would go out there and take it to them, you know, and just doing those things. It just, man, it feels so good. It feels so good. And I don't do it under camera. I don't do it with a group of people. I, I do it by myself because I feel like if this is something someone is into, they will do it. But I do it for the recharge. I do it because someone did it for me. They didn't overlook me. They didn't ignore me when I said I didn't understand or I had a problem with something. They helped me understand it. So I do the same for others. So if you come across an 18-year-old who is just starting to get into trouble, what advice would you give to them? Well, first, I find out what it is that has drawn this individual into the choices they made. That is, you, you have to find out what the trigger is. Otherwise you won't know how to help this individual. You need to understand what the trigger is. What influenced you? I talked to this, uh, I talked to this uh, uh, child the other day. He's about 17 years old. And his mother really got upset with him because he was posting something on social media about interest in his gang life. So I pulled him to the side when I had a chance and I asked him, I said, man, you know, I knew, I know exactly what drew me to that type of lifestyle. What drew you? And he said, I seen my mother struggling and I wanted to help. And so he thought this lifestyle, that fast lifestyle, that fast money, that drug dealing, he thought that that lifestyle was going to help him turn it around for his mother. And I told him, I said, do your mother know this? And he says, no, I never told him. And I said, I don't think she knows it. You need to, you need to speak to her because that may change the conversation with you and your mother. You know, because your mother is going to do everything because she loves you. She, she's going to do everything in her power to make sure that you are provided for and you are cared for. But there's something that you lack or something you think you should have more of and she's not able to provide. 
So you identify that as she's struggling. So you need to have that conversation with your mother. So he had a conversation with the mother. Their relationship came out better. Uh, he felt better about himself and started making better choices. So, you know, it, it, the, was it resolved? We don't know. Let's wait five, 10 years to see how his choices come out. But for now, he got it. He got the picture. And his mother understands. She has a clear understanding of these influential choices that he's making and why he's making them. So is it your kind of view that this kind of intervention really needs to happen on a one-on-one -on -one level uh, in order to figure out what is driving people? Because we have the, the components of extrovert, introvert, um, I believe, yes, one-on-ones, you know, can come across stronger. One-on-ones can come across stronger, but it is just like I, I see it in similar ways that I see the client, uh, the client uh, uh, business provider relationship. You want to establish a, a, a relationship with the client and then provide a good service for the client. So the client has this overwhelming emotion or ideas about the experience and they walk away wanting to call David again. I want David to come back. David, he talked to me, he gave me time. He listened to my, my desires. Um, he satisfied my wants and he did a good job. So now David is called back because David left an impression. It's the same thing when you're mentoring. First, make the impression on them. Build the relationship, make the impression upon them because now you don't have to deal with walls of trust. Now the relationship is more open to where you can come to an individual and say, hey, listen, I don't mean to be in all your business, but I'm curious and I'm concerned, you know, about this thing. And then have a conversation with that individual about it. So, you know, but... You have most programs where they will sign these children up, put them in a room, and they just want these children to be vulnerable and open. Well, we know as grown-ups, as mature adults, that we don't feel being vulnerable with our wives, with our children. We want to be strong. We want to be looked at as strong. We want to, we want to know that you can count on it. So it's really hard for a child to be that open and vulnerable in a public setting. So it's better to do a one-on-one. -on -one. It's I, I think it's better to do a one. I have I have received better results with the one-on-one. -on -one. Which makes sense. Um, so I, I mean, in terms of kind of a societal level, I mean, what are we doing wrong in terms of how we're handling uh, you know, crime and punishment and things like that? This is so multi-leveled, it 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 is uh yeah. it's ridiculous. Not a well, first it, well, it is a fair question, but we have to we have to remove ourselves from the subject at a whole and do what we just discussed, have a one on one with this subject. And what I mean by one on one with this subject, if we know crime, crime has went up 20 percent because of drugs, then we need to uh, we need to address the drugs at a ground level on the drugs. Where the drugs being sold, where they're being purchased, who is the one selling it? How do we shut it down? The police feel that if we arrest the bad guys, then the problem is solved. Well, every time we, we, we know in life 
that every time you remove one negative, another one comes. If you pull a weed from your grass, 10 more grow. You pull a gray hair from your mustache, five more popping up in place. So it's a continued maintenance of what you just did. And then it is the approach on, and how we approach it. The police, you know, they, they do their job. They're paid and trained to do a job. Do they do it effective all the time? No. No, they don't do it effective all the time. Does that mean that uh, the whole system it should be torn apart and thrown away? I don't, I don't think so. I think the system can be fixed. But if the system can be fixed, then we can fix our systems. Because our systems need to be fixed too. So we have to find out. I like to do, um, it's like a marketing strategy. You go out and you find 10 problems. And you resolve those 10 problems. If you are effective and you have a high turnout rate, seven out of 10, now you go get 20 people and you resolve those problems. And then you start making notation of where you had success at and where you didn't have success and continue to stay with what works and partner with other people who doing something that what works because they may have a tool in their shit that you don't have. Because everybody is uniquely different, you won't get across it in the same way. I went to a church when I first came home from prison and the church recruited the men in the church to go out and talk to the prostitutes about getting off the corner. So when they started recruiting, my daughter looked at me. I went with my oldest daughter and she looked, she said, dad, you're not going to go. No. She said, why? And I said, because they're setting themselves up for failure. They're going to these women out there in their element. And you're trying to tell these women to come out of their element. They're in their element. And then, and then in most instances, some of these women are being watched. So they're not going to say or do anything that can cause problems for themselves. You're approaching that wrong. I get, I get the passion or the idea behind it. I just felt it was the wrong approach. So I didn't participate. Very interesting. Um, all right. Well, we're, we're just about out of time. Uh, but uh, anything else you want to share about things that you're doing right now? Well, the things that I'm doing right now, I'm currently in the process of writing a book. It is an autobiography and a self-help. Um, I'm thinking about 10 chapters because there's 10 siblings in, in the family. And I want to keep it concise but I want it to be impactful. So to tell an autobiography about my life, for me, that's not interesting enough. I want to share with people um, the value in the exercises that I had to go through in order to gain some perspective, new perspective in my life. So I want to create an autobiography with 10 chapters, but for every 10 chapters, there's a sub-chapter sub on self-help. So I want to take a little different approach to the book. But um, yes, I'm definitely uh, writing the book. I'm currently writing that. Um, I have begun um, since last year, I have begun um, speaking engage, uh, participating in speaking engagements, paid for, you know. So now I'm starting to earn a living uh, speaking to people about uh, diversity and inc inclusivity, 
you know, it, these are just subjects that people seem to be passionate about. You can, you can, uh, uh, you can word your content to fit that perfectly. And people seem to, uh, people seem to gravitate to that really good, really, really good. And, um, there's also uh, transitional housing that me and a mentor of mine who is uh, the president of um, Pelican Bay uh, Volunteer Alliance with uh, Hustle 2.0. And we're uh, talking about getting transitional program to where these guys are coming out of institution who's graduating from Hustle 2.0. They can come straight into this, this transitional house and they can be helped with their employment. They can be helped with their budgeting. And, um, you know, they can begin to create for themselves the life that they want to love by, you know, taking the pieces and putting them in place. So we're currently doing that. I have maybe five different projects in the community right now that we are doing with uh, uh, children, athletic sports. We just got a, um, a woman's uh, soccer team. Uh, uh, out here in South Sacramento. And um, we're also trying to get them into entrepreneurship to get them out there in the field to learn how to uh, uh, use time, you know, to basically satisfy the job and retain income while also um, learning how to be better skilled at time management. And and it sounds like you're doing so much amazing stuff. Uh, you know, it, it, it just, you're, it, it, you have an amazing story because you've taken a life that you were headed in the wrong direction. You spent almost 30 years in prison. Uh, and, and now you're, you're really able to get your life back uh, on track and you're giving back at the same time. We have... We all know that we are imperfect. Our lives are imperfect. But we strive every day to make this imperfection look perfect. And if your imperfection is perfect for you, who am I to question it? It's not my life. It was not the choice that I needed to make at that time. And when I was younger, I took a lot of small incidents and I projected them on a big screen and blew them out of proportion to where for me, they became mountains when they were nothing more than rocks. So instead of removing the rock from my life, I created this mountain. I mean, it's as the saying goes, if you dig the hole and you no longer have the shovel, that help you create the hole that you're in, now you have to use your ingenuity to get out of the hole. And this is what I had to do. This is what we all have to do. We have to use our ingenuity to get out of the hole we dug for ourselves because the tool we use to dig the hole no longer applies. All right. Well, I wanna thank you for coming on our show and uh, sharing your amazing life story. I thank you for having me, man. It's a pleasure. And we are going to keep continue doing this work in the field. We're going to continue to, to make breakthroughs for other people. And we're going to continue to build ourselves up because the stronger we are, the more we can help others. That is Silverio Strong. Uh, he has gone from a life incarceration to helping those who are in his position. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system.
Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.